All right, River House, it's been a little cold the last couple days, so you need a little more activity, so let's just stand up and get on our feet, and let's honor the reading of God's Word, amen? All right, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Uh, I'm only going to talk about verse 19 tonight, but I'm going to read the whole prayer. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 20. This is Paul praying, uh, writing to the church of Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and the breadth and the length and the height, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think or imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. And if you believe that, say amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's a good night to be at church, right? I got a quarter of you on board. What about the rest of you? I hope nobody dragged you here tonight. I hope you're here of your own free choice. It's a good place to choose. And God is good. Amen. 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 Okay. Well, who's ready for the word tonight? I'm ready for the word tonight. Jesus, we just ask that you make us ready for the word tonight, that you give us hearts that are receptive and moldable to what you'd want to speak, and that you would speak from heaven, and it would witness to our hearts no matter what we came in here with, God, whether we're a skeptic, whether we're a believer, whether we're on fire, or we're lukewarm. We just ask that the Spirit of God would descend into this place, and that you'd bring living words that would set our hearts on fire with, uh, with a power that we can't describe. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to keep talking about Nazareth. <laughs> now, honestly, you guys, I know you're not saying anything now, but I got emails and a lot of conversations and saying, that was so good. That gave me all these things to think about. And I just felt as I was in praying, the Lord said, let's, let's take this a little deeper. So obviously last week, Pastor AJ preached a great word, didn't you think? See, you get excited about AJ, but you don't get excited about Nazareth. I see how this is going to go. It's going to be a great summer. You're really going to miss me. Uh, but uh, two weeks ago, I talked about the desert. The revival comes from the desert, and the desert consists of Nazareth and the wilderness. And I'm going to really focus in on Nazareth. I just feel the Lord keep pressing me uh, upon this upon me, that I think a lot of us in, in, in this community, and I think even corporately as a community, you know, we've been together almost five years. Isn't that crazy since we began a little prayer meeting? Officially, it'll be in November. That'll be our five-year birthday. But, you know, Every relationship in life, it goes through this. This is the stage of the relationship. It's, it's, uh, it's like overflowing joy. You know, you're like so excited. And then you go from that to uh, you get let down. You, know, you go from like this huge consolation to this desolation, 
right? It's every relationship. It's like you get to, you get to, you know, a new job. This is the best job ever. You know what I'm talking about? It is so much better than my last job. You know what I'm talking about? And then it's like a year later, you're like, oh my gosh, it's the same. My boss is the same person with a different name and he still drives me crazy. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about, right? So, so consolation is exciting. Then you have desolation. That's when life gets real and you realize, no, we're, we're, all, we're all just humans. And my baggage flies with me wherever I go. I can't escape it, right? So consolation, desolation. And it's at that point when there's disappointment that that's when you find out the, the depth and the, how, how much fortitude there's really in that relationship because then it will either be abandonment and you'll go through the cycle again or there'll be real growth. We've been together for a number of years now. Some of you are newer, I know, but as far as a culture, right, you come in and it's like Riverhouse is new and it's a church plant and it's growing and it's awesome and it's so it's amazing. It's the best church ever. You know what I'm talking about? It's like I've never, it's like, and then, and it's true. God is good. God uses the church. But you, if you've been in here long enough, pretty soon you'll realize that there's a lot of people here. <laughs> I'm... One of them, right? I'm a person. The people you're sitting next to are also persons, in case you didn't know that. We don't do holograms around here to stack our attendance, right? We're real people. And where there's people, there's gonna be the rub. There's gonna be the, the, the you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so I'm saying this is that I think this message is pertinent because Nazareth is part of what happens when it just is kind of normal, when it's not new, when it's not exciting, when it's not the amazing thing every single time. What do you do then? Because if I need it to always be new and exciting and fresh, well, then I'm going to have to always be looking for something new, exciting, and fresh. And I'm going to miss the opportunities to press into growth because I'm going I'm to have to go somewhere else and recreate the cycle. And this is American church. This is just being real. It's about every two to four years is what most people, two to five, I think, is the, that's the average of people in a church, and then they go to the next church, and they go to the next church. Sometimes God sends people from church to church, not against that, blessed many people that have left this community in, in a healthy way. But that's, that's not necessarily always the case. Right? There's something more than just needing new and fresh. Right? We have to know what to do with the ordinary and the mundane and the obscure sometimes, and even the difficult. That's why we're going to talk about Nazareth. Are you more excited now? Right, so Nazareth. Jesus lived in Nazareth for a long time. We don't know exactly, but we'd say at least 20 years. He's in Nazareth. And what is Nazareth? Nazareth in Jesus' life was where he was the son of God, but he was known as Mary and Joseph's boy. He was the one who was the star breather, and he's known as a carpenter. Nazareth is where it, the outside it doesn't quite line up with what you know is on the inside of you. You, you've got all these promises and these, these words and these dreams and this calling and this and this and that, but it just doesn't seem to be translating on the outside. You're hidden. Nazareth is about being hidden. Say hidden. You're hidden. You're hidden in Nazareth. It's just, it's not yet. Jesus was the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was going to do all these things, but it was not yet. Say not yet. It's not yet. It's necessary, but it was not yet. Nazareth is necessary. Jesus was in Nazareth a long time. And Nazareth, as I two weeks ago said, is where the kingdom of God gets interiorized within us. Right? So that, that's, a, that's a big loaded word. It gets interiorized. Right? Because the kingdom of God is inside, outside. 
And in Nazareth, outside doesn't work the way you want it to. So you have a decision in Nazareth. You're either going to go inside or you're going to be really frustrated. And your efforts are going to keep not doing what you want them to do. Because Nazareth is about teaching us. It's where we learn that the inner life is a more powerful reality than the outer life. Who you are is more powerful than what you're doing. What, what, what's taking place on the inside of you is the most important thing about you. All right, so Nazareth, Nazareth is good. You guys are really quiet now. What does that mean? It means good. Okay. I'm going to trust the four of you that said that, that it means good. Uh, good. Okay. So, so that's Nazareth. And, and Nazareth is challenging. Right? Bummer. Why is Nazareth so challenging? I'm going to offer some perspective. These are thoughts. Right? I believe that Nazareth is challenging because it confronts our deepest existential fear, which is that we are insignificant. It confronts it. It confronts what we all are afraid might be true about our lives. That my life doesn't mean anything. That my life isn't special. That my life isn't significant. And the reason that Nazareth confronts this is because on the outside, that may be true from what the world says. Nobody was looking at Jesus and saying, the favored of God, the Lord's anointed, the next revivalist, the prodigy. We don't, we don't see, it's, it's just painfully empty. Zip. Jesus, the star breather, the son of God, the Messiah, the one that was going to turn the world upside down, the healer, the, the one who, who brought salvation to, to the world. He was, he was a nobody. And we also don't get the sense that Jesus was uncomfortable in this stage. We are, but he had no insecurity. Right? The curse in, in Genesis, we see the curse is twofold. It says that the man's basically going to be cursed working the ground. Do you know what I'm talking about? Man sins, the angel comes, God says you're going to be cursed. There's a curse now on you. You're going to try to find significance from your labor, your productivity, the work of your hands, and you're not going to do it. It's going to be painful. And to the women, it says you're going to find it in relationship. You're going to seek to find the significance in what you're looking for in relationship, and that's also going to be painful. So work and relationship, it, there, there's a curse that comes from sin. You're only going to find pain in the places that you're searching for significance. In the places and the wells that you're going to try to drink from to, to find fulfillment and satisfaction for your life, you're going to find pain. That's what sin did. Sin tried to push us to the outside and create an outside-in reality. That's what we got enticed to do. That's what we've been ingrained in, right? And uh, the reality is that if we can stay productive and feel powerful and influential in the midst of community, we can actually kind of numb away our connection with that fear of insignificance, Right? When I'm producing a lot on the outside, when I feel like I'm powerful in relationship with people around me, if I'm an influencer, I don't realize that I'm afraid. I don't have to actually face this existential fear that I'm insignificant because I can trick myself into feeling that I am. Right? This is what I call the cult of significance. And this is the world, this is, this is American culture. We're a cult of significance. We're in love with influence. You could do significance, you could do influence. Cult of influence. 
We're in love with it. We worship influence as a culture. We, we, and, it, and this is the thing that's kind of hard is that it's in the church just as much as it's in culture. This cult of influence. We, we are seeking and desiring. To some degrees, I think even in the church, we don't even know the difference between God and influence because that's literally what we think God is. God's salvation message is a pathway for me to become an influential human being and exercise powerful power and control in the midst of community and be really productive and fruitful and God's gonna bless me in all these ways. It's a little more nuanced than that. I'm not trying to slap anybody around. I'm just trying to give this thought that this, this cult of influence is really ingrained into our thinking in the Western world right now. Right? And Nazareth confronts this. Nazareth confronts the existential insecurity that resides in the heart of fallen humanity. Nazareth forces us to really grapple with the question, am I significant and why? What makes me significant? Right? All of us fear, pretty much deep down, all of us fear obscurity and irrelevance, feeling powerless, and insignificant. We don't like that. But we must face these things if we're going to find what we're really seeking. Beneath our very self-confident culture, everybody's really searching for this. And the greats, the people that we now label historically as these amazing influencers for God, revivalist and church history, uh, they, they wrestled with this themselves. Uh, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, he, he was, he was mur martyred. He, he literally chose to go back to Germany knowing that he would most likely be martyred by the Nazi, Nazi regime. And he got safe haven in America, and he went back, and they literally were in awe of this man. He won over some of his Nazi prison guards because the way and the dignity and the resolve and the confidence that he oozed uh, was undeniable. He was friendly. He was kind. He was poised. He, he, he literally led chapel services. He would comfort the people in the prison. He's just one of the most amazing men, one of the most astute, intellectual, driven. He, he had this moral compass. He knew what to do. He was intentional. His, his writings have been with us for, you know, many, many years now since and have changed Western Christianity. This is him, three months. Confident Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is him, three months before he, he was martyred. In prison, he wrote this poem called, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a soldier from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warden freely and friendly and clearly, as though they were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of, or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for color, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for my friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? 
this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible, woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Who am I? I like that poem. That's the question of Nazareth. Nazareth brings those lonely questions. Who am I? What makes me significant? Right? And what Nazareth does is, like Bonhoeffer, is he's sitting in this confined place where it's not working like it was supposed to on the outside. It, it starts to expose and we start looking at things. Yes, on the outside I'm this and I'm that and people say this and people say that and I have this and I have that, but suddenly it just becomes not enough. Doesn't matter how much money's in the bank or how many followers you have or how, how important or special people think you are. It just doesn't quite satisfy the thirst that we're really searching for. Nazareth gets us in touch with that thirst. It gets us in touch with that question, who am I? And like Bonhoeffer, if we face the reality of what's going on inside of us, if we face the, the reality of our irrelevance and obscurity, it will lead us to a deeper, capital R, reality. It will lead us to the reality that I am yours. I'm yours. And that's the only thing that will ever satisfy that, that significance question inside of us that I belong to you until we know this, and I mean know it, it doesn't really matter. Nothing will satisfy the thirst. But the truth is, once we know it, we'll recognize that we're more significant than we ever imagined. That you're more significant than you could even dream or fathom. You don't even have the guts to imagine how significant you truly are because you belong to God. And he made you and he formed you. And that's the joy, that's the glory of Nazareth, is that God is putting you in a hidden place because that hidden place is where you're supposed to find the glory that's hidden inside of you. And he's saving you, saving us from a life of spending our effort at things that simply won't satisfy. Nazareth is where the question, who am I, must be answered. And this is the kicker. Until you answer it, you can't leave. Every city in the world will be Nazareth to you until you've answered the question, who am I? No matter what you do or how great you make yourself to be on the outside, you'll still be thirsting and you'll still be haunted with the same lonely questions. Who am I? Am I one day this and another day something else? Am I who other people say I am or Am I who I believe I am? And who is that? And what makes that real? And what, what brings that substance? This is what Nazareth is about. So, so if I'm in Nazareth, this is a hypothetical question that you should ask. You guys are just so quiet. If I'm in Nazareth, what, what do I do? Anybody asking that right now? What do I do if I find myself where on the outside it's not what I want it to be yet? What do I do? The first thing you do is you have to let work and you have to let your community off the hook. 
the work of your hands, your productivity, and your relationship in community, what people see or think of you, you have to let that off the hook because it's not gonna give you what you're searching for. We kick against the goads there. We can get really frustrated circumstantially. Frustrated, it's, oh, I, I, need a, it's, I need a new job. I need a new job, I need new friends. I need a new church that believes in me. I need a community that sees me. I need, we can just go through all these different things, but the, 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 the crux of all that is that we make ourselves to be the victim. The problem is, I'm a victim of my circumstances right now. The problem's you guys, it's Nazareth, it's you, God. I just need a change of scenery. I need fresh eyes on me. You guys are so quiet. It's, you know, you can still be lighthearted, even if it's a little convicting. You can be like, let's just act like it's not, and then I'll be convicted later. But right here, let's just, just drink it in. Let's just act like it's fun. So you got to let people off your, the hook. Let the outside off the hook. This is so simple, but it's one of the most powerful things you'll ever do. Let your circumstances off the hook. I feel like a lot of Christians, we get young, we're young in the Lord, the Lord gives us all these promises, and then we're full of hope, we're full of faith, then our circumstances change, we start going into the desert, we're in Nazareth, we're in the wilderness, and it's like we spend so much energy with our circumstances by the neck, being like, change, change, change. Seriously, and we end up just whining and whining and whining, and we spend so much energy, our right biceps about to just break when God's like, if you just like channeled that in worship, what would it do for you? <laughs> All right, this is, this is Henry Nowen, not me, so I'm just warning you. You cannot get mad at me. I, I really like this. I'm going to read it. It's, it's, a, it's a lengthy quote from his book, which I think is one of the most prophetic books written in the last century. This is him talking about uh, maybe 30, 50 years ago about what he thinks leadership needs to look like. So influence needs to look like in the coming century. And he's speaking, this is the context, he's speaking about a Western, modern, powerful world that values efficiency and control and productivity. And he says this, but there is a completely different story to tell. Beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there is a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fills the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. Brett Easton Ellis's novel, Less Than Zero, offers a most graphic description of the moral and spiritual poverty behind the contemporary facade of wealth, success, popularity, and power, and I would add influence. In a dramatically staccato way, he describes the life of sex, drugs, and violence among the teenage sons and daughters of the super-rich entertainers in L.A., and the cry that arises from behind all of this decadence is clearly, is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who wants to stay home for me? Is there anyone who wants to be with me when I'm not in control and I just feel like crying? 
Is there anybody who can hold me and give me a sense of belonging? Feeling irrelevant is a much more general experience than we might think when we look at our seemingly self-confident society. Medical technology and the tragic increase in abortions may radically diminish the number of mentally handicapped people in our society, but it is already becoming apparent that more and more people are suffering from a profound moral and spiritual handicap without having any idea of where to look for healing. It is here that the need for a new Christian leadership becomes clear. The leader of the future will be the one who dares to claim his irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows him or her to enter into a deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the light of Jesus there. That's a good word. There's a different story than what the cult of influence is preaching to the world. There's a different story. People don't tell you that, that all the influencers and the messages that, and the people that are preaching are empty themselves. There's an empty pulpit that is propagating a powerful message through our culture, and it is just as infatuated and loved by the church as it is by the culture of the world. Follow me and become great. Become an influencer. Become powerful. And it's just a propagation of this empty message. And beneath it all, how many huge pastors do we have to see fall to understand that there's something wrong with the message that we're preaching? There's the gospel that we're believing in. The question that our culture, and I believe the church in this nation is still crying out is, is there anyone who loves me? Is there anybody who thinks I'm valuable if I don't look influential and powerful? Am I still special if I don't have X, Y, and Z? If I'm poor, am I still lovely in the eyes of God? These are the questions that are just beneath the veneer of our conscious obsession with the glitter of success and productivity and power and influence. This is the pain of the cult of influence that we've all been subjected to in this country. And Nazareth, Nazareth is, is meant, it's designed by God to challenge our relationship with the cult of influence. And this is the truth. The only remedy to, this, to the, the preaching of this cult is prayer. It's a life of prayer. And it's not just prayer, it's contemplative prayer. And the reason I have to qualify it with contemplative prayer is that prayer easily gets pushed into the works category where it's like, it's about you to pray, pray, pray. But if you've prayed enough, if you've prayed a number of years with the Lord, you begin to start recognizing that prayer is not about your mouth, it's about your ear. In your relationship with prayer, there's only one of you that spoke and created the cosmos. <laughs> and it's not you. And you learn that. And you eventually you're like, okay, these are getting dry and boring and monotonous. And God's like, because you just need to shut up, honey. So when I say contemplative prayer, it's not a life of learning how to communicate to God really well. It's learning how to listen. That is the only thing that can save you from this cult of influence. It's the only thing that can, can draw you into another way. And it, it's the place of healing. It's the place that can remedy you. It's the place that can change you. It's the place that can answer the question, who am I? 
There's only one place. There's literally only one place where that question can really get answered. And it's with the voice of Jesus. It's in prayer. And it's contemplative prayer because it takes patience. Right? Some people, I'm not a contemplative. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not all that. No, it's not about that. It's about learning to use your ears and the ears of your heart. And, and it's learning to value patience more than productivity. That's what prayer teaches you. You can't force your way into the holy of holies. You can't force your way into intimacy. It's patient. It's a patient pursuit. Prayer teaches you things, these things. Con con contemplative prayer, that's our remedy. That is, that's the counter way. That, that's, that's, the, that's the other way. That's the alternative path of the kingdom of God. It's either contemplative prayer or we're gonna just buy into this cult of influence. And the reality is that cult of influence is gonna take us out. We may do all these things on the outside, but we'll still be left with those lonely questions like Bonhoeffer saying, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? God doesn't want us to live our lives with a deep longing inside to know who we are. He created us and formed us that we would be known by him and that we would know him and that in that knowing something deep and profound and mystical and powerful and supernatural takes place that changes us from the inside out. This is Nazareth. This is what Nazareth teaches us. Nazareth is about becoming a man or a woman of prayer. You won't be able to go from Nazareth until that's been solidified in you. And what now one would say is you become a mystic, right? And the biblical foundation of what, of what a biblical mysticism is, it's simply a person who finds their identity in experiences of God, in, in relationship with Jesus Christ, in, in connection to him. That's all mystic is. It's you find your identity from the presence of God. And that's the verse we read tonight. Listen to this. That you would know, right? That word know in the Hebrew would be yada. Paul is a Hebrew man. So gnosko is the Greek. That's how it's translated. But Paul, the, the Hebrew worldview of knowledge would be yada, which would be Adam, yada, Eve, and they had a child. So it's not an intellectual knowing. It's, it's a yada. It's a, an experiential. It's an intimate. It's a face-to-face. -face. It's, it's beyond words. That you would yada the love of Christ which surpasses your knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you describe that one? You don't, you have to experience it. You're never gonna get that. You're never gonna make sense with that, right? You wanna know a love that's beyond your knowledge. That's what it means to be a mystic. That's what Paul's praying, that you'd be one who finds your identity and knowledge of the love of God. That is your salvation. That's the only thing that can remedy you from listening to the message of this world and just following it head hard. And like, we're just, we follow it. Culture just follows it. We're like the sheep just following it right down into the water. We're just following it right off the stampeding, right into the, the drowning, our own death. That, that's what this cult of influence is. It's like, hey, just come here. We'll sparkle you and glitter you and give us your, give us your identity and your destiny and your birthright, and we'll make you flitter and flutter for a little bit and feel like you're these things. It's a lie. It's a myth. We have to expose this thing. We have to walk as a church a different way. We have to walk through Nazareth. We have to say yes to Nazareth and say, God, do in me what needs to be done so that I can be liberated from this cult of influence and actually be used by you to be a conduit through which the kingdom of God comes to this world. This is the witness that the world needs. It is a people who are characterized by a holy indifference towards influence. 
That's the witness. That's the only thing that will evangelize this cult of influence that we're living in a dominated culture by, is if we as Christians develop a holy indifference towards influence. And let me describe what this means. Holy indifference is an inner reality of deep contentment that enables pure and generous contributions to society. Right? It's a holy indifference. It's kind of like take it or leave it. It's like that's not what I'm pursuing if it happens, great. If it doesn't, I'm okay with that too. We see this in Jesus. Jesus, the crowds come. He doesn't really just seem to be too excited about it. The crowds leave and reject him, and he's like, he looks at his disciples and say, you're going to leave too, right? Jesus had a holy indifference toward influence. He was not grasping influence and power and control and efficiency. If he was, he would have never gone to Jerusalem and suffered on Golgotha on the cross. He would have never gone there if he was grasping for the influence and the favor of people. Never. Everything Jesus did was upside down. That's why his disciples, why he had to rebuke Peter. Peter's like, don't do that. You're going to lose your influence. Jesus is like, that's not what I came for. Right? The cult of influence, it will only be evangelized by those who possess a holy indifference towards influence. And this inner reality, this, this holy indifference will only be cultivated through a life of prayer. It will only be cultivated through someone who is more attached to God than they are to influence. That has to become the dominating reality of your life is what you're being told and listening and this presence, this deep union with God. It's union with God. It's that you'd know his love that surpasses knowledge and be filled with his fullness. That's what's going to answer the thirst of your soul. And then when your, answer, when your soul has that thirst satisfied, you won't thirst for influence anymore. And you'll actually be able to offer something pure and powerful to the world. Everything gets judged by its source. So if your leadership, which is another word for influence, if your leadership is sourced from you, it gets judged according to what it's sourced by. If your leadership is sourced from God, it will be powerful and eternal, and it will make generational implications upon people. But if your leadership is sourced from yourself, you are simply a thief in disguise. It says, I'm acting like what I'm doing is for you, but it's really for me. I'm acting like I have something generous to offer you, but really I'm taking from you because I need you in order to feel good about me. This is John 10. Study John 10. This is the hired hand versus the good shepherd. It says, the thief's coming by another door, but I'm the door and I'm the good shepherd. And I'm a good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Jesus' leadership was an act of generosity. It wasn't about him. He didn't need to come and be a leader and sacrifice himself and do all the things he needed to do in order to feel good about himself, in order to be significant. In order to, he was already the son of God. He was already worshiped. He was already the great I am. He was already at the right hand of the father from before eternity. He was already everything that he was. He didn't, he didn't become something more because of what he did on earth. Everything he did was an act of generous love and power will, will witness to pure love. Love and power, they're so intertwined. The problem with the church, why the church has lost influence is because the church isn't, we need, we're seeking influence. 
It's not about them, it's about me. We've made it church about what, and, and Christianity, and, the, it's, and we, we whine and complain when it's not working for me. Why am I in Nazareth? Why? Because God is trying to do a different work, because there's a different way. He's trying to liberate us from this cult of influence that is demonic and broken and destroys lives. The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is the thing, we tolerate the messages. We know we're living in a world where politicians, we know, they tell us what we want to hear so that we'll give them a vote and keep them in their, their safety so that they can be career politicians. We know that there's not selfless service being exemplified in our culture, but we tolerate it because deep down, we're still idolizing it. It's like, you can, no, we'll, we'll tolerate selfish leadership because it's still prophesying to me about what I can become. I can be significant too. It's not Jesus. It's not the way. And, and we should expect it in culture, but it should not be in the church of Jesus Christ. We, 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 we should, and this is what it does. When, when, we, when we're not seen in this way, what we start doing is we start valuing the messages and the influence, and we actually kind of need, we have this internal ticker that it's like, well, I'm only gonna really let someone impact me if they have a certain amount of influence. And, th and th this is what we do. We chase ocean waves because we think if we can catch that wave, it's gonna carry us to our destiny. And what we do is we overlook the deep ocean currents of the hidden saints that are right next to us. We miss the people that are right next to us that are cultivating this depth and this energy and this powerful force that can take us miles and miles, take us to our destiny. We don't value them as influencers because they, they don't have it. They don't have the goods. Everything's judged by its source. What's the source of your life? What's the source of your offering? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a contemplative life, a contemplative prayer. It's a life of being filled with these words and these words, and then you're actually, this inner working takes place, and somehow you can embrace your irrelevance in Nazareth and be like, I, I am irrelevant. I have, I, my life is fragmented and confusing, and I don't understand how it fits into the big picture of God, but I don't need to understand it anymore because I know that I'm loved. And as long as I'm loved by him, and as long as this little confused fragment of my life is in his hands, I trust that he will take it and weave it into his tapestry and it will be on God's timing and God's way and God's method and it will be eternally more glorious and beyond what I could even imagine but it's not gonna be because I went and made it happen and strove and, and created and manipulated and climbed the ladder and did this and garnered it. I just, I just found that I was loved by him and in my little loved life, God flowed through it and he worked. These are the people that change eternity. These are the people that win the heart of God. And th there are people like this in our midst. You know, I, I, I kind of missed my Mother's Day moment because I got excited to preach. But th this, is, this is my mother. I don't know, where are you, Mom? Where is she? Oh, she's not listening to me preach, so. <laughs> I'll just honor her even if she's not here. You know, she, my mother has lived a very hidden life that from the outside looks very obscure and painful and broken. 
and her story didn't go the way she wanted it to. But it's the inside of her that's made such an impact on me. I've, I've beheld humility in her. I've, I've experienced love through her. I've experienced God through her life. The force of her life is so much more than what the outside would say. The outside wouldn't label her an influencer. No one would say, I want that life. If you, if you looked at her story, but, but I honor her because she's been like a deep ocean current, a force of God in my life. Her fingerprints are all over my life. There she is. Your fingerprints are all over my life. You, you missed, her, you missed her, your segment. I think this is relevant on a day like Mother's Day. Motherhood, fatherhood, what, what a greater act of service. What a greater offering of yourself, of your leadership, of your influence. But that's not what the world celebrates. That's not the message that's being preached. It's saying if you wanna be a good mom, not only do you need to be a good mom, but you need to be on Instagram and you need to make sure at least 100,000 people know about it and then you'll be significant. That, that's, the, that's the yoke, that's the chirping in our ears. That's what we're hearing. It's like, no, it's not, we're not chasing waves, it's an ocean current, amen? We have to learn to discern between the voice of thieves and the voice of good shepherds and listen to the voice of good shepherds that are like Jesus who are laying their lives down and it's not about them. We have to look for the people that have lived a life of this prayer that are in a deep union with Jesus. Those are the people you wanna be around. Those are the people that will mark your life and change you for forever. And, and it's true, some of those people, I'm not saying that all people with great influence, no, a lot of the people that God exalts, they came from this place. But this is where it gets tricky in our world is we, we, we don't see the inside-outside pathway to influence. And so what we do is we take the influence disconnected from Nazareth, we put the influence here, and we try to chase influence as if it's something that we go after. All right, you, Bill Johnson, who, who's been influenced by Bill Johnson in this room? Bill Johnson wasn't seeking influence. He pastored a little tiny town smaller than McCall for like 20 years. That's not the pathway to becoming a global revivalist. You know, and if God wants to exalt someone to become a global revivalist, that's God's will. But that's not what makes Bill Johnson significant. And, and if God wants to hide some people in a way that seems obscure on the outside, it doesn't matter because a lot of the books that I read that wreck my life, nobody knew about them. But God just brings forth these treasures, these diamonds from, from the midst of their inner, inner life. What defines you is the inside, it's not the outside. And we have to preach this and make this a culture that we embody. We, we have to encourage one another within the house of God. We have to be safe to be here and say, I, I'm wrestling, who am I? With my own irrelevance, with my own feelings of insignificance. We have to be able to talk about these things and encourage one another, not that you're just gonna be the next greatest in this and that. Because sometimes that's one of the things that I get leery of when I see in the prophetic movement is the prophetic words mirror the cult of influence. Just more and more and more and more influence. That's God's will for you. 
and it resonates with something in us because it's what we've been preached our whole lives. You wanna be great? Fulfill the American dream. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not the way his kingdom works. It's come in, come in, come and listen, come and learn. Come and let me show you another way. When you discover who you are, there's no one else that you would ever wanna be. When you discover who you are, comparison dies. When you discover who you are, you are free. You are free to be exactly who you are in exactly the life that God's given you. You're free to walk in your shoes and be very, very happy about it. You're, you're, you don't wanna be anybody else. I actually believe that once you discover who you are, you, you don't need any more influence. You discover you have a holy indifference towards influence. And it's like, well, if God gives it to me, that's amazing, and I will steward it faithfully. And if he takes it, the same. Put influence, let it be in the hands of God. And let's make the pursuit of our lives to listen and be loved and learn to receive. Drink of the water. Come to me, all who are thirsty. You can drink. If we do that, you'll, you'll see God do more through than you than you imagine. The force of your life will be like a deep ocean current. And you will impact deeply the world around you. And it will not be, it comes from obscurity. Revival comes from the desert. Because revival, the desert, is what brings us on this inside outside pathway. The desert is your greatest friend. It's your biggest ally. Nazareth is a place of glory. If you want to know Christ in you, the hope of glory, you need to live in Nazareth for a while. Don't be afraid of Nazareth. Don't be afraid to wrestle. Don't be afraid to sit quiet for a while. Don't be afraid to just, to just listen. Don't, don't be afraid of what comes up. If we'll stay here for a little while, if we'll walk this road as a community, I believe that God's gonna do more than what we imagine. He will, that's his desire. He wants to change the world, you know? It's like, it's like that was his plan, not ours. It's, not, it's just, we're not trying to convince him to do it through us. We're just yielding. Yielding, yielding, yielding. Yielding, yielding, yielding. Learning to be loved, amen? Yeah, so how about you stand, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray over us. Lord, I thank you for Nazareth. I thank you for the ordinary. I thank you for the, the situations, God, and the circumstances of our life that you orchestrate to draw us in. And I just ask, Lord, that you will teach us Holy Spirit how to come into the well of Jesus and drink from him. That you will shift our perspective tonight from the outside to the inside. Lord, that we will buy into the message of the kingdom, God, which is different than the message of the world, and that you will liberate us tonight, God, from, from any way, God, that we've just been attached to this idol of influence, God, that is so predominant in the age that we live in. 
Lord, that you will liberate us from it, God, that you'll redeem us from the curse of Adam and Eve, Lord, that we'll no longer seek significance from the outside things, God, the work of our hands, God, or our relationship to one another, but that we will come back to the source of life himself, and we will drink of your voice, and we will learn you, God, and we will patiently pursue you, and that you will do a deep inner work inside of this church, God, that will precede the, the, the outflowing that you want to bring, God. I thank you, Lord, that you... Uh, you, you know uh, the plans that you have for us, Lord, that, that you want us to know your love, God, and, and, and do greater and more abundant than anything we can ask or imagine. And I pray that on the inside, that on the inside of our lives, you will do greater and more abundant things than we could either ever ask or imagine. Lord, that our faith will, will, will start to put our faith upon our relationship with you, and not just what you'll do through us, but what you'll do in us, what you'll cultivate within us, God. I thank you, Jesus, for Nazareth, and I bless the season that we're in. I bless, God, the stewardship that you've entrusted us in, to us in these days, and I ask, God, that you will make us, uh, you'll make us uh, mystics, God. You'll make us people who find our identity in the presence of God, Lord, on the inside, in the secret place, in the Holy of Holies, where it's just you. Lord, we, we lift up all the mothers. God, I thank you for the, 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 the mothers in this room, God, and I bless them. God, I bless them with a with all my heart, God, we thank you for the vocation that you've given them, Lord, and, as, and just even as an embodiment of so much of this message, God, in the season that they are uh, in, in, in what they have done in years past, God, and we just thank you. God, we bless you, Jesus, for what you're doing, and we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I just, we're going to, ministry team is going to come forward, and I'm just going to have them dim the lights and... Uh, if you want to receive ministry, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, but I'd also encourage um, you to just, those of you that want to just stay and sit, you can stay and sit and be silent before God and listen. Uh, you can go home and listen. But regardless of what you do right now, I just want to encourage you to just be listeners. Go and listen to the Lord this week. Give him your ears. Give him your time. And let him fill you with that for what you're searching for. So I bless you in Jesus' name. And we'll see you next week.